Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to um, this DIA panel, this DIA event about the future of payments in the Euro area where we discuss uh, possible digital Euro. I am very thrilled to have um, all of you um, guys here on this um, panel. And um, so, yeah, my name is Valentin Seehausen. I'm a board member at the Digital Euro Association. I also work at the Frankfurt School Blockchain Center. I'm an economist and a blockchain developer very much interested in, in this field and uh, today I am the one uh, with imposter syndrome because I'm sharing this uh, panel with um, yeah, so, some of the most distinguished experts in this field and we have um, Dr. Martin Diel here, he's the head of section payment system analysis at the Deutsche Bundesbank which is yeah, basically the German uh, central bank. Welcome Martin. And uh, we have uh, Anthony Welfare, the a new role, European CBDC lead in global partnerships um, at, um, at Ripple, our um, exclusive sponsored uh, partner. Uh, very great to have you here. Welcome, Anthony. Okay. Uh, we have um, Ezekiel uh, Kopik, Ezekiel, right? Uh, the global head of public sector research and development of C-Labs. And C-Labs is another um, partner of um, the DEA. And... I think actually the first one. So I'm very glad to have you here. Zirk. And last but not least, we have Professor Dr. Peter Bofinger, um, which is currently the chair of monetary policy in the national economics uh, professor at University of Würzburg, a beautiful city in Bavaria, and which was also a member of the German Council of Economic Experts. In German, it's called Wirtschaftsweise. So, yeah, basically an economic um, e economist idol of myself. Uh, uh, welcome, Peter. No. Um, yeah, you like the digital use uh, CBDC in the European uh, payment area is uh, is a topic that um, drives us all, and uh, especially the DEA community. And um, you all have like um, you, you you've written a lot and um, you do a lot a lot about this topic. Obviously, um, two of you are working at a um, technology provider that could um, provide the technolo technological infrastructure to this. Um, so, I would ask you to introduce yourself and your um, yeah your current stand to the digital you or what you think is important around this topic and i would like to start um yeah with this round maybe um martin yeah thank you very much okay thank you very much i guess you all can hear me so i'm a central banker um having been working with uh, or about uh, crypto token dlt blockchain and digital money alike for i don't know five six seven years or so uh, and it has increasingly narrowed down to the topic of digital money. What should we do to support the use of the DLT in the economy? So I'm an analyst doing analysis in payment and settlement system. And that is the core of DLT being a transaction technology uh, that 
why it is important for us as central banks, central banks provide or, or take care of the payment system uh, safety and efficiency are most important aspect here. And my main uh, topic at the moment, research topic, is how to use uh, digital money in a wholesale format for industry, for financial market, not so much related to retail issues of uh, the digital euro, but how could we support the economy to make use of the DLT with either tokenized money, a wholesale CBDC, or any form of a trigger solution. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Um, Anthony, do you want to go next? Yeah, thank you. So welcome, everyone. Great to be here. And um, great to be representing Ripple now as we're, um, as we're one of the key partners now of Digital Euro. And it's um, very exciting times. Um, you know, my background, I've been in blockchain, enterprise blockchain for about five, six years now. Um, I started with Oracle and um, working on really the early stages of enterprise blockchain solutions there. Moved to um, DXC technology, where I led the global blockchain practice, has spoken to, it feels like hundreds of enterprise companies and, and banks and financial institutions. And really the last sort of two or three years or so, it's been very much focused around the payment side, obviously, um, you know, digital currencies, you know, from cryptocurrencies through to digital currencies, CBDCs, has been critically important. And for me, you know, tokenization as, as a sort of overview of, of, of all of these is, is just taken off everywhere. I'm sure we all know what NFTs are now. I actually wrote um, uh, my book on commercializing blockchain back in 2019. And um, when we put non-fungible tokens, people thought we were talking about mushrooms or something. So now, amazingly, everybody knows what an NFT is, which is um, actually for the industry amazing, I have to say, for adoption of blockchain technology, it's fantastic. Um, but it all comes down to payments, let's be realistic. Um, everything that we do in life, um, there's some sort of payments, be it your salary, be it your taxes, um, or be it just paying a friend or paying for your drinks, etc. So for me, working through this, this new world of possibility of using blockchain DLT technology for payments and having what I would say is the top of the pyramid of a CBDC is the most, it's the ultimate token in a way, in, in, in my phrasing, is really interesting, but it's so complex. And obviously within Europe, we, you know, have... Uh, you know, X number of countries, all of which are sovereign countries. In the Eurozone itself, there's X number of countries. So for me, the digital euro is the most complex and challenging. I think it's a lot easier in other countries. And that's why we're really keen to be, you know, part of this. You need a lot of um, research, understanding, testing, and working this through, because it's not easy. But in my view, it has to be done. And, you know, the sooner we get to, to more real tests, the sooner we get to more reality, the quicker it moves. Uh, the technology's there, give or take. It's just the rest of it that still needs to work. And, and I'm sure we'll have the rest of this discussion to talk through that. Awesome, Anthony. Thank you very much. Ezekiel, um, yeah, please go ahead. And I'm a little bit jealous about the Californian sun in your background also. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, my name is uh, Ezekiel Kopic, or Zeke for short. Um, Ezekiel can sometimes be a bit cumbersome. Uh, anyway, I uh, work for a company called C Labs, um, which is, uh, as Valentin had mentioned, uh, where we built the Cello blockchain. 
Um, but prior to that, most of my career has actually been spent uh, in central banking. Um, so for many years, I was at this uh, Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Um, and then after leaving that, um, I went to the World Gold Council for a while to help central banks around the world manage their gold reserves. Um, so I really sort of take this challenge on, um, you know, more from perhaps Martin's um, position. I mean, certainly I'm not a central banker anymore. Um, and, and he has challenges that I, I couldn't even dream of um, now. Um, but uh, certainly looking at, you know, how we can create these public and private partnerships uh, between central banks and between uh, technology partners, because I, I ultimately think that's really the way forward. Um, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all um, for CBDC. I think that the solution that will ultimately perhaps work uh, in the euro area is not going to be one that perhaps will be that we'll see maybe in the U.S. Um, or you know in, in other parts of the world. So I think that it really comes down to you know understanding how we can work together um, in the private sector and the public sector, whether that's you know using wholesale CBDCs to back. Um, stable coins that are maybe privately issued, which is somewhat akin to our commercial bank money that we have now is certainly one option. Um, you know, and for us, we're really focused also on, on interoperability. Um, you know, there's a lot of great blockchain projects out there um, that are doing a lot of really cool stuff. And I think for me, um, if I just put my user hat on and, and not a not a member of, of a technology company, you know, I want to be able to make sure that if there is a, a, a CBDC out there, that like I might be able to use that in in all these amazing you know decentralized financial products, um, you know, whether they be on on Celo um, or perhaps on Ripple or perhaps on on any other blockchain, um, you know, and and so you know, as Anthony mentioned, like this is a very complex. Um, situation. And it's, you know, we're not going to get there tomorrow. Um, and it's going to take, you know, oh, quite a while uh, to do. But I think um, with sort of this public partnership, with these dialogues that we're having um, is also really important. So I, I'm very excited to be here and, and look forward to the uh, conversation. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, last but not least, um, Peter. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me to this discussion. And so I got in this business about uh, 40 years ago when I wrote my dissertation and the dissertation was on a paper by Friedrich Hayek, which was had the title uh, Denationalization of Money. And so he was the first one who made the case for private money competition. And so I wrote this dissertation about 40 years And Peter, we have some uh, connection issues, which is a pity because um, Hayek's denationalization is, is a very um, is a is a very uh, great topic to talk about. Is it um, better now? So I've put off the. I've put off. The, is it better? I've put off the camera. Yes, yes, it's, it's better. You, you can you can start with Hayek again. Okay, so I came with so my my starting point was Hayek's proposal for. Uh, competition, uh, private competition uh, in, in money. And I wrote the dissertation in early 1980s. And but then for many years, nothing happened. And so, of course, it's fascinating for me that now all the ideas that Hayek had that private issuers of money compete uh, with the national issuers, that does now become reality. And so that's, to me, it's, it's really fascinating. So what is my approach to the CBDC and digital euro debate? So. Uh, Under economists, most of the discussions are from a macroeconomic perspective. So how does CBDC uh, 
impact on the transmission process of monetary policy? Will there be this intermediation among banks and all that stuff? And so my approach is more microeconomic. And I, I addressed the discussion from, from two aspects. And, and one aspect is if the central bank as a public institution enters into the competition uh, on the private markets, there must be a market failure. As economists, whenever the government becomes active, you say there must be market failure because otherwise uh, the government should keep out. I think that's the Hayek idea saying we need private competition. We don't need the, the central bank to be in this business. So the one question to me is, Uh, where is the market failure that justifies the activities uh, of central banks now going beyond just issuing cash? And related question to this is, if, if central banks issue CBDC, will these CBDCs be able to compete successfully uh, on the market? Because so far, central banks are issuers of a, mono, of a, mono, a monopolistic issuers of cash. There's nobody else competing in the area of cash. But with, with digital Uh, money central banks of course compete with other digital solutions and to me the important question is will central banks really be successful the cbdc or will it become a, a gigantic flop which would have negative impact on the reputation of central banks thank you very much uh, peter and um, yeah i think you can see um, that uh, you are well deserved uh, one of the first experts we had at the dea i You guys mentioned so many topics that go into the core of this discussion. Um, wholesale CBDC, public-private partnerships, stablecoins, um, Hayek. I would invite one uh, high-level um, round of um, why do we need a CBDC? What are the benefits of a digital euro before we uh, dive into these topics uh, one by one? To, um, so... Yeah, can we have one round more about like why do why are we talking about a CBDC? Um, in the same um, direction, maybe Martin, you you want to start? Yes, of course. Thank you very much, Valentin. Uh, we first have to discuss what it really means, digital money. I mean, digital money we have since uh, 70s, since the 80s. Every one of us has that on the on his account, on his account or her account. Uh, this is nothing really new. Digital in a means of economic uh, of uh, electronics and not being physical. But digital nowadays means something more, something different. It must be more than just being non-cash. Every one of us knows that. And digital or uh, central bank digital currency must also be more than just uh, money on an account with a central bank, like money with Target 2, which only banks can, can have or our business partners have, which is limited to them. Uh, though in my eyes, in our eyes, as, uh, we have various publications explained by the Bundesbank, digital in the new sense means more. It has something, it must have something to do with the new technology related to blockchain and DLT. It must serve some of the purpose or the function which were enabled by DLT or, or by blockchain. So uh, these are the functions of um, mainly put it uh, uh, programmability in a way. Uh, and this is the, the aspect we found most useful in the inventions of, of Bitcoin and all related inventions afterwards. Bitcoin itself is, was important only for the network, 
uh, we don't look at too much at the cryptocurrency. It doesn't. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry for the word for the crypto token. It's not a currency, as you all know. Um, so we don't look too much on the on those crypto token. We look at the technology, and the main benefit of the technology is it could serve us to to uh, well to create something what we call economy 4.0. It could serve us to make a smart contract work in order to facilitate the automated settlement of um, of trade of every sort of trade. And it could serve us to make use of DLT, uh, giving the economy the, the, a means to use a, a joint database for their trade. So this is the main important here. Uh, whether we need new money, well, it could be needed if we want to make that DLT really work in an economy. That is our view from the bonus bank. So programmability is the most important aspect here. There is another aspect which comes more from the political sphere. It is about sovereignty. We consider nowadays the payment system and the settlement system as a strategic sector of our economy. And if the European Union or the monetary union wants to create or to support a European sovereignty in all strategic sectors, then we need to base our infrastructures on European institutions, institutions which follow our European guidelines. Nowadays, as you all know, our payment system is, uh, well, it is European in a way, but transnational payments uh, for private households or for companies are very often rooted through uh, non-European-based institutions, MasterCard, Visa, whatever. Uh, we don't have any problem with MasterCard or Visa, but this is not a European uh, institution. So our here we have some limits for our oversight, for our, well, for our sovereignty. So a digital euro could also be a backbone for uh, European sovereignty when it comes to a strategic sector payment system or settlement system. So these are, in my eyes, important aspects for thinking about it. We might be forced, or not really forced, but we might be inclined to implement really a digital euro at one day um, in order to defend our sovereignty, to defend it against whoever against other uh, countries initiating a digital currency or against uh, private companies uh, creating private money, which may be used also in Europe. And in order to be prepared, it is worth thinking about the digital euro. I'm not arguing that I would implement it at the moment or that, it, that we have already found all the necessary means how to implement it. But I'm arguing for the for the fact it would be it is necessary to be prepared in the case we need digital europe thank you very much uh, martin um anthony um do you want to answer or yeah talk about cbdc in general again yeah yeah so um uh, so similar to Martin's um, sort of, you know, points and, and sort of where we tend to look at with Ripple is, is sort of the use cases and the benefits of a CBDC. So, you know, why are, why are 
the citizens? Why are the businesses going to use this as well as obviously the the sort of other side of the coin? So, uh, you know, we've got five sort of main areas we look at. One is the the obvious one around enhancing existing payment systems and payments infrastructure. So with the CBDC, hopefully, um, it will be faster, more efficient, reduce cost, less failure. So it's just a lot more efficient to make payments and also micro payments and those sorts of things. So just the, the main basics of an improved financial payment system. I think secondly, and something that's mentioned a, a lot globally when you talk about CBDCs is financial inclusion. Um, you know, there's a lot of countries around the world and even countries in Europe where there's a significant proportion of the population which is unbanked or underbanked. And using a CBDC, assuming that everybody has a smartphone or some type of even a, a text phone, could actually promote the financial inclusion a lot better. And also uh, for times like we've just been through, you know, with, the, with COVID, payments uh, to the people quickly have been very difficult. I worked with Ireland at the start of the, um, uh, the pandemic and it was quite difficult for them to make payments to the businesses and people as and when they needed it. And I think most countries had similar issues and obviously the US actually sent out checks and pieces of paper. So, you know, we need to get a system whereby, you know, hopefully not well, it's probably will be when the next, uh, you know, pandemic, but the next crisis hits, we're in a situation where the banks and governments, the central bank and government can help the people, uh, you know, instantly, in essence. And um, the next one is around competition and co-optition and, and really reducing the barriers to entry of, of payments and payment related and working together. Um, so one of the things that a CBDC would do is help people use payments in a quicker, easier, smarter way. And that then brings us to innovation. And innovation is, is just, you know, totally, totally, uh, you know, beyond our imagination, I think. Uh, you know, I mentioned at the start, NFTs. A year ago, I'm sure most people would be, what is NFT, what does it mean? Now we all know a picture of a monkey is worth millions and millions of dollars at the moment. Um, but that type of innovation, which is happening in, you know, the crypto markets, the, the fintech markets, and just generally, a CBDC would really help that with quick settlement and, you know, transparency and openness. And then finally, uh, and really to Martin's point, you know, it, it is around the CBDC is around maintaining control and sovereignty for the central banks, but also transparency and, uh, you know, understanding what transparency means is a big discussion. I won't go into that now. Obviously, I assume we will later on. Um, but, you know, so it enables transparency the way that the government of that country would want. And I think, you know, that's important for different countries in different ways. So, so yeah. So I think those are, are sort of the main five areas that I see why a CBDC is important. And in Europe, as I said at the start, you know, it's a lot of different countries. And, you know, we all use the same currency, so we've got to actually work together and, and sort of work the best for everyone, um, which, which is the challenge ahead. Yeah, thank you very much. And I think uh, the audience um, already gets uh, why we, we were internally so excited about this panel. Um, let's add, um, complete this round uh, with Ezekiel. Um, maybe you go ahead. Sure, thanks. 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with, you know, what's been said by Martin and, and Anthony. Um, but I, I think, you know, taking a step back, I think we should probably, you know, make sure that we're defining what we mean by CBDC because, you know, there is, you know, there's wholesale versions and retail, you know, versions. And I do think that those are, are different and separate. So you can, you know, to Martin's point about sovereignty, you know, I could see a situation where, you know, Europe might want to go more of a wholesale route um, and, and use that sovereignty through a wholesale CBDC where other countries, you know, maybe want to do that through retail. So I think we do want to make sure that, you know, when we're talking about the, the benefits um, or, or the, the pros and cons of a CBDC, we want to make sure we define that um, because I can, you can imagine like, you know, what really is CBDC compared to a stable coin. You know, the, the biggest thing for me is that CBDC sort of represents that trust that a central bank will often have, um, you know, the citizens of that country will always often have, you know, all else being equal, they will trust their central bank over um, a private sector payment system, right? Um, and so, you know, in Europe, th there's already a very strong banking system. You know, most people have access to banks, not everyone, of course, but most people. And so, you know, while certainly, you know, Financial inclusion is a big, you know, part of that. Um, I think that that doesn't necessarily come into play as much as in other parts of the world and emerging market parts of the world, right? Where where those commercial systems, those commercial banking systems, may not be as robust. Uh, their ability to bank their citizens may not be as vibrant as it is in other countries. And so there, you could argue that a CBDC on a retail side might be more important. Um, especially to Martin's point about sovereignty. You know, right now, the vast majority of stable coins are pegged to the US dollar, um, with then some, you know, being pegged to the euro and then lesser ones to uh, the British pound and, and the yen and stuff like that. And so you can imagine for smaller countries, um, smaller central banks, right? You know, the, the last thing they really want to do is, is have this, you know, big stable coin come in that's pegged to the dollar and all of their uh, economy is now becoming dollarized, uh, you know, before their very eyes. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, certainly, you know, understanding of that uh, perspective. And so you can see there, they would want to have a retail CBDC, right? They'd want to have an option um, that was uh, denominated in their local currency. And that's really, really important. Um, you know, I think for places like the US and Europe, you know, a lot of these digital currencies can already be in their local uh, currency, right? There are um, stable coins pegged to the euro. There, again, obviously, most of them are pegged to the dollar. So that's not necessarily an issue. Um, and then, and then once you get kind of past that, then of course it's all about um, the use cases and you know the programmability of money and absolutely um, you know the, the financial inclusion. You know, one of the things I'm really excited about is the ability to do things that our current traditional financial system. It's just really not in their business model. You know, when you think about like micro payments, um, you know, there's a company building on Cello that um, you know delivers universal basic income, like in the denominations of like 50 cents a day to people all over the world. Um, you can't really do that right now with our traditional financial systems. Like they're in 30 countries, they're in thousands of communities, they're you know distributing millions of dollars, um, but at 50 cents, you know, a transaction, um, that's not possible uh, in our current system. Um, or you think about the use case of micro insurance, right? Our, you know, our insurance companies probably don't want to worry about insuring somebody's small land and 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 crops that might be worth, you know, ten dollars or a hundred dollars or or whatever, right? They're they're kind of more focused on the bigger players, um, and so this ability to really have, you know, focusing on the individual um, is such a powerful tool. Um, it's a really exciting thing. So. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Peter, may you complete this round? Yeah, thank you. So I must say I'm still not so convinced uh, that there is a good business case uh, for the digital euro. And I think one has to differentiate among two dimensions. One dimension is you can define the digital euro as a payment object or payment asset. Simply that you are able to have a bank account uh, with the central bank. So that's that's the, the payment asset. Um, and what is the advantage of having an account with the central bank? Well, the only advantage, but of course the important advantage is that the money is 100% safe. And uh, in fact, uh, people from the ECB also say, yes, the case for the digital euro rests on the idea that people must have access to central bank money, even if there's no more cash. And so, yes, there's some interest in this absolutely safe asset, but it's limited because up to 100,000 euros, you, you, you have the deposit insurance. Uh, so any account with the commercial bank is also safe. So what's interesting are deposits above 100,000 euros. And there, of course, the interest would be huge. I think there would be many investors, global, national, uh, foreign, that would be happy if they could deposit uh, money uh, with, 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 with the ECB. But that's exactly what the ECB doesn't want. So this is something that would be really attractive. Uh, the ECB clearly says more than 3,000 euro will not be possible. 3,000 euro, that's just peanuts. So I think this kind of payment asset is not really interesting. Then you could say, well, but uh, it's a kind of digital form of cash, this, this digital euro. But the question is, is such a digital form of cash really interesting? I often compare it to wine without alcohol. So in Sweden, for instance, you can get wine without alcohol because alcohol is so expensive. But I think normally what makes wine attractive is the alcohol. And what makes cash attractive is that it is not digital. Yeah? And so and this kind of digital cash, that's what the digital Europe might be, in my view, is not really so much attractive for most people because they have a reason for not using the, the easy uh, forms of, of making payments in an additional way. So, so I, I don't see why people might be really interested in, in these payment objects. Then you could say, well, digital euro is a, is a payment system. It's a, it's a complete payment system. And that's what, when, when people talk about the sovereignty, as, as Martin did, uh, of Europe in relation with these United States payments platforms, you could, there, there could be a case for that. It's saying, yes, we do not want PayPal to dominate our payments, which, which they are increasingly doing. Uh, but the question then is, if, if you want a European payments, retail payment system that competes with PayPal, do we need CBDC? And, and here I have a very good example. In Switzerland, you have Twint. That's a Swiss payment system, retail payment system, which is extremely successful and which is even able to limit the power of, of PayPal. So in Switzerland, you have much less uh, influence of these of this US payment platforms because they have twins. So they've developed their own payment platform, but you don't, but but they don't, this, this twin payment platform does not even have payment objects that are specifically of this of this payment platform. The, the payment platform just uses all kinds of payment assets. So I think it's it's not so clear uh, what what the advantage of, of the digital euro is. And and I don't see right now that the ECB has the ambition to develop a, a complete retail payment system. 
And I must say, I also doubt whether a public administration, a central bank would be creative enough <laughs> to develop all these, these, these nice features that you need to be, to be successful on this, on this area. So I have many question marks. Yeah, thanks. Before we dive into this very interesting uh, topic of like public uh, private partnerships, um, Martin, I, I, I saw your reaction when uh, when uh, Peter mentioned the direct access to uh, central bank money, which would basically be a retail CBDC. Um, the, like um, maybe now where we have you on the panel, could you maybe um, explain why this retail CBDC is is so different from a wholesale CBDC and why the why the ECB is as hesitant um, yeah to provide this? Yeah, in uh, in part, of course, uh, Peter is uh, exactly right here. Or let let put it very simple. Uh, there are some who have argued, even central bankers, but I don't want to give you a name or to blame anyone. Uh, some have argued that we need a digital form of cash because people are using less and less cash. Well, as an economist, I would say if people use less cash, so why do we need a substitute for cash? You know, if they don't want it, so don't give it to them. The euro system has made it very clear, and, and also the Bundesbank, that we do not intend to substitute cash. Cash is uh, is issued as long as cash is demanded. So the argument we need something, some something to substitute for cash is not really valid in my eyes. That is not the case. The case must be drawn as. Uh, others also have argued in this round uh, on on the new possibilities of these technologies, on, on what is really new now, what has changed. And the thing, what has changed is we have a new technology at hand, which facilitates a lot of more, well, things which haven't been possible yet. That's why I'm talking about programmability. The other aspect of sovereignty, which I mentioned, is has not changed. It is a long-standing European issue. Uh, well, the case of Switzerland is—I know that case—but Switzerland is only one country. Within Germany, we have also a very good system, very cheap for the customer, the Girocard system. But it ends at the border of Germany. Outside of Germany, if you pay with your card. The cash, or the sorry, the payment is wired via any uh, credit card company. This is not a European basis, though this is different. The new aspect is really the programmability, and that's where we come to the point. What we need, why we, why I'm talking about wholesale CBDC as probably the more uh, urgent use case. A retail CBDC would be something at hand for all people, all possibly all companies, for everyone. Everyone who could who could get cash could also get uh, retail CBDC. Wholesale, well, there are various definitions. The, most, the, the best definition in my eyes is restricting the CBDC, the wholesale CBDC, to those who have already nowadays access to non-cash central bank money, meaning those who have already an account with the uh, euro system, with Bundesbank or any national central bank, who have an account at Target 2. 
Well, why is that difference so important? It has been the most, for me, the most striking difference. If we limit the issuance of CBDC to those who have already access to nowadays non-cash central bank money, then we don't have any implications for monetary policy or financial stability. If we allow the broad public, private uh, non-financial companies, private households also to get central bank money, we might uh, induce the disintermediation of the financial system, Peter and others have talked about. This is the biggest economic risk I see. We don't know exactly how it will turn out. Now, as a central banker, it is not my or our objective to keep the banks alive as they are nowadays. But we have to face the fact that a large-scale disintermediation and large-scale starts already at, dip, at double-digit numbers. If you withdraw 10% of the deposit of the bank, this is a significant shift in their balance sheet. This means a significant shift in their business model. This means a significant risk for financial stability. And we don't know exactly how that will turn out, how we will guarantee the stability of the financial system, neither in the subsequent steady state and when it will be achieved, nor in the transitory period. These are significant risks. That is why the Bundesbank always argued limiting it to wholesale CBDC is much more easy, involves much less risk. Now, you know that the euro system is in a, at the moment in an investigation phase about the digital euro, talking about a retail CBDC. So um, developing models how to limit the, dis the, the potential disintermediation is our biggest uh, task in my eyes, and we are really working hard on it to find solution. I, I'm, well, I'm not blaming anyone. I think we are far from a solution at the moment. So this is about the difference between those two. May I just ask a yes, short please. question to Marty? What is the difference then between a wholesale CBDC and traditional central bank reserves? Yeah, very good. Very good question. Uh, traditional central bank reserves are not able to be used for a settlement on the DLT. Our industry, our financial companies are increasingly using or trying to use that are proof of concept, that are prototype for the use of a DLT as a settlement technology. This is, well, an important strain of work there. Uh, DLT allows, as I, as I said at the beginning, for two important advantages. First, the use of smart contracts, which could, well, enable uh, the industry to settle complicated transaction automatically if it is pre-coded and uh, so it could uh, reduce significantly the transaction costs in our economy. And second, settling on DLT what means that all participants use the same database. So reconciliation costs The cost of checking, well, I recorded that I have bought so much shares and, and you recorded I have only bought so much. And, and then you found out later, well, what is the correct one? All those reconciliation aspects, which are, to, according to some estimates, 70 to 80 percent of the back office costs in 
central securities depositories in, in, in other financial market infrastructures and also with companies. They could be reduced significantly if we have only one database for those complicated trades. And if they want to use DLT, then they at best need tokenized money. Now, if we don't want or don't are not able to issue tokenized money, which we are far from, it would take some years still, a couple of years, then there are other options like uh, like a trigger solution or, so, or something like that. But we as a central bank should strive to enable the use of a DLT for the economy. But clearly, this is nothing for the small scale shop at the corner or the private household. They don't use DLT. That's, I don't see that. Thank you very much. And um, I knew uh, 2022 would uh, start very great, but I didn't know um, that this would mean in February having uh, um, Dr. Martin Deal of the Deutsche Bundesbank explaining the benefits of a DLT solution at the DEA panel. I'm, I'm uh, very thrilled about that. Um, Okay, now where we differentiated between um, like a wholesale CBDC and um, the current financial system, Zeke, I want to ask you as a former uh, central banker and now as a, um, yeah, you work at a company that provides stable coins, right? And stable coins are the solution on a DLT, which obviously has a lot of benefits to, um, yeah, deliver a stable um, value. So, um, I would I would ask you to like answer um, like what like or respond on what Martin said and, and maybe um, actually bring the stablecoin uh, company view towards regulation of a wholesale CBDC. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate Martin's comments. Um, I, I guess I would push back a tiny bit in the sense um, that you know I, I certainly agree with Martin that we wouldn't want to give households, for example, access to central bank reserves, um, and that's this argument, you know, for um, direct CBDCs, you know, what they call it. I mean, central banks were not designed to be retail banks. Um, but where I would push back a little bit is if we keep the 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 central banking system and the in these the uh, reserve system only for banks, um, we're we're basically keeping the same system that we have. And the reality is, is that the innovation, you know, unfortunately, didn't come from the traditional banking sector. Um, you know, it didn't come from central banks. It came from private companies. Um, I'm not saying that private companies are perfect. You know, they obviously have issues they're working through and, and it's a, you know, it's, a, it's an iterative process. Um, what I would argue is, you know, one of the ways in which we, we might be able to partner is if a central bank were to say, okay, look, like we are willing to give some stablecoin providers that we have been able to say vet, you know, I mean, it's not going to be everybody, um, access to this wholesale CBDC, for example, because you could argue that, you know, what the private sector is really good at is innovating, right? And what the central bank is really good at is building trust and, and, and creating this trust. And so if you combine the two, you know, in my eyes, you have a really powerful product. If there was a wholesale CBDC that was able to be used to back um, stablecoin providers in Europe, right? Let's just let's just say there are five. I don't I don't actually have a number. I don't really know. Um, 
you know, but if those stablecoin providers could all back their stablecoin with wholesale CBDC, either one for one, right, and essentially be creating a narrow bank, um, or even do sort of the commercial bank model where it's maybe fractional reserves, right, where they they have you know fifty percent of their reserves um, are in a wholesale um, CBDC issued by uh, the ECB, um, you know, then you create a system where you know as a user it's more of a market based approach, right, like. I might choose uh, stablecoin A versus stablecoin B because they have better functionality or they have a better user experience or they have a better network or, or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, because my, my concern, right, and, and Peter brought this up too, is that, you know, central banks are not, again, not good at innovating. If they build a CBDC and they just sort of leave it static, you know, they may not have that innovation, um, but they, people might still come to them because it is the central bank. Um, you know, and, and I'm less concerned, and you know, in this model, certainly there could be some bank disintermediation, but on some level, I actually think that's a good thing because it's more market competition. You know, it's not saying that everybody's going to, you know, drain their deposits at the, at the commercial banking institutions and only hold CBDC at the central bank. Like, I agree, that wouldn't be a very good solution, right? I mean, that'd be like all of us taking all of our money and just putting it in cash and putting it under the mattress, um, you know? You know, from an economic perspective, that's a terrible idea. Uh, from a central banking perspective, not a great idea. But if you can combine the two, right, combine this trust that we have in central banks with the innovation of stablecoin providers, then I think you could have a system where people can really get a lot of value out of this. Um, and so, you know, I would like to see, you know, a, a time and place where, you know, non-banks um, are able to have access to a wholesale CBDC. Um, to allow them to then use that for for their own stable coins, um, that, that that to me would be really interesting. Um, well, may I directly respond? Absolutely, um, that'd be great. <laughs> thanks. Yes. Thank you. Um, you must differentiate. What does it mean having access to central bank money? Having access to central bank money means you can use it within the system of the central bank. You can transfer money within Target 2 from one participant in Target 2 to another. These are mo mostly banks, not only banks. There are also financial market infrastructure, something like that. It is not to be used for outside purpose. If we talk about non-financial companies or private household, then they deal always with commercial bank money. Uh, although the banks have access to central bank money. Now, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the last stance of the governing council of the uh, euro system is, but it, was, it used to be our policy that, our, that, that we let central bank money only circulate in central bank systems. Well, why is that important? Well, as you mentioned, we rely on the trust in central bank money. The trust of the people of the market is the only important aspect for us. It's our only asset we have, basically. Uh, if we let our money circulate in private system, we run always the danger of reputational risk and more. Uh, so that's why we finally with the uh, inclusion of with the uh, implementation of target two securities 
uh, avoided that any private institution runs central bank money on their account. If you want to have central bank money, it is an obligation for us. It should be run in our system. Uh, that is why we are a little bit careful. Issuing wholesale CBDC would also mean that we have some control in the system running, at least a node on the DLT or whatsoever being in that system. But providing central bank money as a backup for a stable coin is something I could not imagine to be done because then uh, this stable coin company would issue something which could be considered as being like central bank money. And if something goes wrong, it could danger endanger our reputational risk. It must be very clear what is commercial bank money and what is e-money and what if whatever uh, uh, money funds, something like that, uh, stable coin should bear should make sure that they have the, an own risk and that people everyone who uses a stable coin has the risk of the stable coin of the company issuing the stable coin that's why i cannot imagine that really mm. I, I i guess i'd push back a little bit in the sense that like, first of all i agree that like if a central bank were to issue wholesale cbdc and it would it be issued to a stable coin provider you know, that money is not then that wholesale CBDC is not going to be accessible to uh, a household, right? The, it, what you're doing is you're basically expanding the central bank network by a very small amount by allowing the stable coin provider to be in the network. The wholesale CBDC never would leave the, um, the network itself, right? right. The, again, it would be used to back an, a stable coin, right? Another, like a stable coin pegged to the euro, um, something like that. Now, your your question about the the reputational risk, I certainly understand it and appreciate it. Um, I guess my question though is like, you know, this model is no different than what banks do, right? Banks hold central bank reserves and they issue their own commercial money. Now, when a when a bank goes bust and when a bank fails, as we all saw in two thousand eight and all that stuff. No one blamed the ECB. There wasn't really, you know, it wasn't the ECB's problem or, or when, you know, things in the banking system in the US, right? No one blamed the, the Fed because of the fact that these companies were backed by central bank money. And so I don't know that you could necessarily say that if a stablecoin provider um, was backing their stablecoin with a wholesale CBDC issued by the ECB, if they went bust, I'm not entirely sure that you could blame the, the ECB for that. Um, I also think it would be a much safer way, for example, having that money be basically in the, the central banking system, to me, seems far safer than having that stablecoin provider put their money in a commercial bank where there's zero transparency, um, where we have no idea what they're doing. Um, and so at least if it was in the central bank, you as the central bank would have full transparency into like stablecoin provider A and B and C and and what's in their accounts. Um, and so for me, I, I don't know that I would necessarily buy the argument that the ECB would be can, would be should be worried about their own reputational risk. Um, there's far more reputational risk if the ECB develops their own CBDC that's retail and that fails. Um, the answer is to that is very simple. If you want to do the business of a bank, why don't you become a bank? We don't prevent you from doing so. Just become but, a bank well, and you get I would argue, though, that stablecoin. Yeah, but I would argue, I mean, stablecoin providers don't provide loans, so we're not a bank. 
right? I mean, we wouldn't be, we're not like trans, we're not transforming money. We're not, we're not, there's, there's not this whole maturity transformation. We're not doing loans. Um, we're simply providing a payment service. Um, and so on that regards, I would argue that we're not really a bank. You would, uh, you would have to uh, underline uh, the whole oversight of the central bank. The same rules would have to apply. Yeah, to and, and I'm not suggesting that we wouldn't be, that there shouldn't be oversight regulation. I mean, giving someone access to your wholesale CBDC should certainly come with some rules, right? Um, and that's why not every stablecoin provider would sign up to get access to the wholesale CBDC, right? You'd say, listen, here are the rules, um, but those rules shouldn't be based on how you know, how big you are. I mean, you shouldn't be no, because no. you are, you know, the biggest stable coin out there and have exactly. maybe the most lobbying power, but you should say, look, here are the rules. If you can meet those rules, then you can have access to the stable coin. And again, this is not maturity transformation, right? We're not taking that money and then creating loans out of it. And then, and that's where the central bank should certainly be concerned about financial stability. Um, but I, I don't know that I understand the argument for, you know, against giving them access when it would really essentially be like a narrow banking system, um, you know, which, you know, in, in that case, it's, it, we're not really like banks. Um, but anyway, this is just, you know, a debate. So, I, and I, I see others that want to chime in, so I, I don't want to monopolize time, but uh, thank you. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting debate. Um, for me, it's because there's two things, really. One is transparency. And um, both of you guys have just mentioned that. Um, what a CBDC on DLT does is give transparency. So whichever level you go to, you can have transparency. So if you look at the ultimate, you know, a retail CBDC all the way through, not necessarily without intermediaries and without the commercial banks, at one press of a button, let's call it, you can see all the money everywhere, like where it is, payment providers, commercial banks, central banks, etc. So. I think transparency in the ultimate aim, that doesn't happen overnight. That's obviously where it can get to. Um, so I think that's important. I think the stablecoin thing is really interesting because there's lots of discussion about it. The reality is there's billions of dollars in stablecoins today. So if you're a country and you're, um, your, your citizens are high um, crypto users, They're probably at the moment in, I don't know, 50% stable coin. You know, the markets are not great. So depending where we are in the market, depends on, you know, where people are trading the stable coin. They are all, as, as, as Zeke said before, they're all in US dollar, really, a few euros, etc. Isn't that a massive risk for smaller countries and for Europe overall as euro? Because I personally live in Europe pay my taxes in Europe, and I have my stable coin in US dollars. Most of it is in US dollars at the moment. And so when this starts to grow, which is growing, as we know, exponentially and will continue to grow, then the risk of this is just growing every day, every time this grows. So for me, looking at stable coin in the family of the CBDC, let's call it, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how linked, but in that family is really critical to this. And, you know, we were talking to a couple of non-Euro European central banks, and they brought up this, this sort of discussion that actually they've got very high crypto usage and they're very concerned that in their own currency, which is non-Euro, but in, the Euro, in Europe, they're all in US dollar. And it's quite a lot of money in their economy that sort of sat 
in somebody else's currency. So they would want a stable coin in their currency straight away as part of this, but they want the oversight and to be able to see it. So I think the pressure is coming from the crypto trading that we have to look at this. And for me, the, the transparency that we can have as an overall CBDC, let's call it family, I think is the, is the ultimate aim, but it's still the building blocks to get to that. I, I think a stable coin and CBDC is just the opposite because CBDC would be 100% safe. And I think stable coin is relatively unsafe form. Peter, could you turn off your camera, please, because of the um, connection? Thank you. So now, Perfect. So I think there's difference between CBDC. You don't hear me? You kind of. Get it. I'm I'm afraid the connection is 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 pretty bad. I would actually love to hear your statement. Okay. I, I'm not I'm not sure if it gets better. I I will okay. come come back otherwise in a minute. No, no, this this does make sense. This is, I think, this is too digital, <laughs> too too much Robert, right now. Um, but I would really like to hear you. I jump in later, okay? Maybe then better. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. I mean, sometimes it's working, right? We all know this okay. from, from Zoom and from the bad connections, especially after Go like ahead. more than two years of pandemic. Is it working right now, Peter? I no, think it's he not. to move on. He's going to try. I think he's probably resetting. Yes. Um, um, so we have this very, very interesting discussion, right? I, I think we are at the core of, of the actual discussion. So we are having obviously the central bank um, being concerned about financial stability and uh, um, for God's sake, because like we all benefit like highly from, uh, from financial stability. And um, I also found it very interesting um, that yes, this intermediation is, uh, is a topic, but this is obviously not the um it's it's not the goal of a, of the central bank to preserve uh, pri private banks but um uh, but uh, yeah also allow for um like market competition but i also found it like very interesting to have this like very strong viewpoint of um yeah of the of a stable coin because um, a stable coin um obviously um in this um yeah in the system um yeah what wants to get mar market access to and and there's arguably um like you can have the position of like hey this is maybe an unfair um yeah access um access barrier but um i think um there's a proposed solution to become a, a bank right to, to get a private uh, a banking license and then like get the access to um the, yeah for example target 2 or like um yeah um cbdc or and so, so sorry to a central to to central bank uh, money 
And um, yeah, then we have the question is, um, yeah, what is, um, what is wholesale CBDC? So it's basically like a new te technology for, for the, for the, um, yeah, for the interbanking market or, or Martin, you're, you're shaking your head. I... Yeah, yeah, no, no, sorry. We, we, let me start one, one aspect uh, former. Uh, I, I come to your question. Uh, don't worry. Um, stable coins. What are stable coins? at the moment. Stable coins have reacted to the fact that crypto tokens like Bitcoin and the like are extremely volatile. They are so volatile that they are not usable for payments nor for savings, only for speculative aspect, really. And uh, so some people argued we need a crypto token which is stable. And there are various forms of try of well or various trials to make them stable. And the only as way which really works, to my knowledge, at the moment is pegging the word the value of a coin to a real currency, US dollar in most cases, or to the euro, pegging it to that and underlying the amount of stablecoin with the same amount of that real currency. Or by US dollar or euro. This is the only way, obviously, which really works to stabilize a crypto token. So stable coins are only stable because they rely on central bank money. This is a big compliment to central banks, I take it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry for that. Yeah, good one, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so... What is really new to stablecoins? Well, they are stable and they run on on a on a crypto network. Now, coming back to one aspect which was mentioned by Ethishil, uh, uh, he mentioned at the beginning something like it is faster and it is cheaper than our current payment system. Now, doing analysis in payment system, I know very well that we have some really. In some cases, it takes a long time and it is really expensive. Uh, Cross-border payment is not that good. But there is a big but. Decentralized networks are only in a very few cases cheaper. And they do not, uh, well, they, they are not really to compare to a real system. In, in technical terms, there is nothing as efficient as a centralized system. We did those experiments. Uh, decentralized system always involves a little bit more time and a little bit more uh, processing power unit than a centralized system because of the consensus mechanism. Only if you get rid of the consensus mechanism, which would be a centralized system, then you have the same, uh, same physical cost. Second point, all those uh, crypto networks uh, or stablecoin networks, uh, besides a very few, they do not care for know your customer rules or for anti-money laundering laws or for anti-terrorist financing laws. Payment is not costly. Normal payment system is not costly because the electricity is so costly or the banks make so much profit out of it. The biggest aspect in the cost is running is, is safeguarding against money laundering, safeguarding against terrorist financing. If we would require Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all those networks 
also to run the same protection against money laundering, it would be much, much more costly than it is nowadays. If we want them to, to do the payments for us, they need to, basically. At the moment, they are free from that. We have only money laundering at the point when you exchange Bitcoin into Euro, then the money laundering laws uh, acquire. In my eyes, this is not sufficient, but this is my very personal view. Okay, so it is not cheaper. Uh, I know we could improve our system. I know we could improve also by using DLT. DLT itself as a technology is not good when it comes to simply transferring one value to, from one person to another. Its biggest advantage comes when you transfer values, when you settle values, and you have some after-sales business, like security settlement. Then you have a lot of whatever. You have dividend payment. You have a split of shares and so on. And then you need the second database, and you have so more business with it than just the simple transfer. For the simple transfer, as I said, there is nothing as efficient as a centralized system. Okay. DLT is good when you have more complicated issues like security settlement or settlement of, I don't know, complicated international trade and so on. And there we need that. Okay, and now we come again to wholesale. What is wholesale money or what could wholesale money be? Uh, well, there are two, com at least two competing definitions. One is wholesale money is when it involves large values. That is an easy definition, and uh, don't mix it up with the other definition. The other definition is what we central bankers like more. Wholesale CBDC would be CBDC accessible only by those who have already nowadays access to non-cash central bank, who have already nowadays an account with Target 2. Uh, in the second case, if the definition applies, we would argue there are very little risk in comparison to retail CBDC. Retail CBDC would be digital central bank money available for all who can nowadays have nowadays access to cash, basically to everyone. That would be retail, you know, for every person, every single person and every single company. Wholesale would be only to, well, to the banks and a few others who have access to, uh, to those accounts. This is from a central banker in our division, the, the, the less risky version. Uh, but there are also others who argue that for really using DLT, we might also look to others for large companies who have large value transactions and they also need some access to central bank money or to digital central bank money. I know that the Bank of England has a different stance here. Uh, we have not publicly considered that from the euro system. We might do so in some time. Uh, but I'm not promising anything yet. <laughs> okay. May I ask a question? Can, can... Let's try again, Peter. Yeah. Do you have now idea to have the central bank is two separate things? One on target two and the other one on a distributed ledger. Is this your vision? Let me directly respond. This is this is possible, of course. It is possible to have a separate system uh, if we want to enable uh, 
financial and non-financial companies thought maybe to use any form of tokenized central bank money for the settlement in DLT, we might be forced to run a second system. However, there is uh, a second uh, option, which I call the, the trigger solution, or we call it the trigger solution. We, got, we have the idea that we could enable the financial companies or others to use DLT and at the same time build a technical bridge to the current conventional payment system, in our case, to target two. So if you have like security straight, you know that it is now since, uh, since June last year, it is possible to issue electronic securities. The electronic securities could be issued directly onto a DLT and could be traded directly on a DLT. But the cash lag of that settlement, the asset lag would be on the, on the DLT. The cash lag needs either tokenized money or access to, to a payment system. So we built a bridge, a technical bridge in, a, in a, our experiment together with Deutsche Börse and the uh, uh, Finance Authority of Germany. Uh, and they issued a, a fictional electronic bond on that DLT. And it was settled via this technical bridge, which we call trigger solution in target two. And then the Bundesbank reported back, money has been transferred, and then the security transfer finally took place. So it was a DVP, not within a logical second, but in an economic DVP on the DLT in a sense that the electronic security changed ownership only if, if and only if the money has changed, the central bank money has changed ownership. And the central bank money has changed ownership if and only if the electronic security has changed ownership. This is possible, and we are currently thinking, uh, discussing in the euro system whether we should implement such a solution, which would be much faster than uh, issuing wholesale CBDC, and it would be much less risky because we don't run an own DLT here. We only provide a new access to Target 2, and central bank money is kept in Target 2. This is also better for the liquidity management of banks because they have only one account. It doesn't incur only banks. Though there are other solutions than running a whole DLT where we could learn about the use of uh, wholesale TBDT and maybe could still work on wholesale TBDT to issue it in the future. But this is only under discussion in the euro system. There is not a decision being taken on that. That's interesting. How fast were the settlements in your experiments? In our experiments, <laughs> due to the due to the setup and to the use of a test system, the test system doesn't have the full uh, full uh, power of the whole system. It took two to three minutes. I think we could limit to that between a minute, below a minute. This is, of course, only for large value transaction. And, and as I said, I, I mm. still believe, and I think Peter agrees with that, uh, normal households don't use DLT for everyday trade. Yeah. Retail On the retail side, we don't need that. Yeah, I think I think everybody that tried to onboard a friend or maybe even a mom uh, to a DLT will agree. And... Um, I just want to give uh, Zeke a, a short minute to um, answer if the trigger solution um, is feasible from a stablecoin um, view. 
And yeah, in the next round, I, I would, um, yeah, and we've heard uh, the first um, audience question to An Anthony because, um, yeah, we are approaching the last 15 minutes of this super, super interesting talk. And obviously, um, the DA wants to, um, yeah, invite audience questions. I, I've, I've seen a lot of questions. So maybe Zeke, um, yeah, maybe you, you like um, complete this uh, discussion round between us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, Certainly the, the trigger solution is an interesting one that, that we can look at. Um, I think to the point though, again, stable coins are really focused on the retail user. I mean, they were created to allow retail users access to digital payments that maybe they didn't have access to because maybe they didn't have a bank account. So I, I don't know, um, you know, obviously I think stable coins can be part of this world in the, the, the wholesale side and can be part of um, you know, the security side and, and moving, you know, I personally think that all these assets are going to come to a blockchain at some point, just because of um, the efficiency. Um, I, I have to say, I don't think I said that they were faster and cheaper. I believe that was Anthony, although I do agree with him, um, Martin, that I do think they're faster and cheaper. Uh, so let's give uh, Anthony credit for that one. Um, but I, I do want to push back a little bit. Um, I, I take a little issue with this idea that stable coins are this realm of criminality and that none of us do KYC. Um, a lot of us are very responsible in this field. A lot of us, I mean, our reputations are at, as at stake as well. I mean, we don't have as great of reputation as the Bundesbank, of course, but you know, if we are all of a sudden known as fraudulent and criminal, like you can imagine, we wouldn't last very long. Um, so we take great pride, as do a lot of others, um, in making sure that we, you know, find ways of doing this. Um, you know, there are KYC over certain limits, right? So, and this is what a lot of central banks are doing right now, right? Um, so I, I would push back a little bit, right? I mean, I mean, certainly there are there are cases of this, obviously, um, but I wouldn't. I would argue that maybe not so much in the stablecoin world, um, at least not the world that I'm a part of. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that as it goes to trigger two, again, I mean, we would love to be involved in these, um, in these discussions because I think that the private sector certainly has, has a lot to, to offer. Um, but I know there are a lot of other questions. I know I don't want to, you know, make sure that, uh, others have a, a chance to, to get involved, but, but thanks. We definitely see that we could uh, discuss for at least uh, a few more hours and the discussion isn't over. We will have uh, <laughs> some more years for this discussion as it's uh, ongoing and I think it's it was very insightful already. So this is the first question that um, Zeke already um, kind of answered. It's from the audience. Um, I don't see the name in the Zoom chat. It's um, how, uh, and I would actually ask Anthony directly because he mentioned this topic first. How exactly would a CBDC increase financial inclusion and what would attract unbanked people to use a CBDC instead of cash? Okay, yeah. So financial inclusion works both ways in terms of, the, you know, the example I gave in terms of uh, dispersing money as a government in times of crisis. Um, so on the assumption that everybody has a mobile phone or some type of electronic, you know, device. So even in, you know, um, Africa, Latam, et cetera, everybody has mobile phones, which can text, et cetera. Um, so if that's the lowest common denominator, anybody can access the financial system then. So if you, if you, that's the assumption that you make basically. So they, they have a wallet on the phone or some sort of access codes. There's lots of actually quite interesting technology around that um, so that they can access, so they can make payments to each other, P2P payments, 
pay their mobile phone bills, um, you know, receive money from government, um, you know, those sorts of things. So I think it's about financial inclusion from that perspective is about everybody has a mobile phone, not everybody has a bank account for different reasons. Now, obviously, in Europe, Europe and America, it's, yeah. Uh, most people do and there's also you know basic bank accounts I think they call them in the UK and things like that so most people have that but actually globally it's nowhere near as common and also it's the usability so for me financial inclusion means you, you know I use different um, you know fintech banks with my phone and um, I can just swipe things and and do different things quite simply and easily um, that on scale is what we need. So I, I think um, a couple of the guys on the call have already said that, you know, there's fintech companies that are doing this, but they're all very small, you know, very, you know, they're for a certain type of people, let's say, you know, for, for the more technology aware and technology adopting. So that that's really, you know, financial inclusion is, is the ability to get money to the people that need it when they need it. And for them to be able to access, you know, normal, let's call it normal finance. Then you could also then talk about extra finance and they could take out loans, et cetera, and, you know, make it uh, even more inclusive that way. Yeah, uh, in here shortly, okay. I think you have the speaker and there's the MPSA system, which is wonderful for financial inclusion. It works nicely and offers many functionalities, but you don't need CBDC for it. So you only need a mobile phone network and you need people with mobile phones, but you don't need CBDC. Exactly. But there's, there's a number of CBDC. That's, that's my question. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a number of those solutions, uh, you know, M-Pace are obviously, as you say, being the, one of the, the main ones that people know, but they're, they're all around. They're all run by private companies and they, they're only, uh, they have their different reasons for doing things and the different, you know, it, it's not, uh, trying to think of the words it's it, if it was a cbdc related and the same as what i access through my bank account then that's fine but it's not it's a different type of money now i'm not saying it's wrong it's just simpler and easier with the cbdc and i think mpesa and those are actually leading the way and if they were using a cbdc they could still do what they do but it would actually be quicker and easier and cheaper to settle which is where it will get to um, you know, once we get more DLT and more of the, you know, financial system. I, I doubt this because in order to compete uh, with these mobile phone companies, the central banks would have to set up a mobile phone network because that's what is required to reach yeah. the people they, over the jungle. And it's not, and, and so in order to compete with these, yeah, with these companies, you, you would need a ne network for this because otherwise yeah. you simply take the CBDCs as another payment asset in this payment system, but it, that CBDC would then be no payment system because the no, system is I'm not suggesting that you, the mobile companies don't do what they're doing today. They just access a central bank digital currency, which is a CBDC on DLT, which would be more efficient than the system we have now. Because at the moment they're accessing the payment system and then through all the different levels and the different costs. So therefore, they can't do P2P very, you know, ultimately cheaply. They can do it cheaper, but not very cheaply. So it's the CBDC that enables the mobile phone company to, to do things cheaper. And rather than getting rid of the mobile phone company, I wouldn't, you wouldn't get rid of those. 
you won't get rid of commercial I'm banks. Not, I'm not convinced, but anyhow. Cool. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah. Again, I would love love to um, um. Yeah. Continue this discussion. There's another question from the audience. I'm not quite sure how I would answer it. Maybe one of you guys, uh, like we didn't even talk about um, public-private uh, partnerships. Uh, the, the question, sorry, not the answer. The question is, do you think that the source code of the digital euro will be open source? The answer is no. <laughs> okay, perfect. So next question. <laughs> I like that. What do you see as the biggest obstacle in scaling a CBDC that can balance audit functionality for AML purposes and privacy for consumers at the point of sale? So, yeah, we have anti-money laundering. We have know your customers. Like we've got this like, and we really want to have like security and um, like, um, but then uh, a transparency. But then we also want to have privacy. And obviously there's a trade-off. Like how do we balance it? Like, um, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Who goes first? Who goes first? Who wants it, to answer? Yeah, uh, perfect. So our question is a balance, and this will be discussed forever, um, even when we we move to the next stages of these sorts of things. I think, in terms of speed of AML and KYC at point of sale, you know, it's there's a lot of new technologies around there, and again, the private-public partnerships is where this would be good. So different ways of using your ID, your you know, uh, you know, self-sovereign identity. Uh, you know, for your wallets, for your phone, even fingerprints and things like that. So it's all about tying the transaction to the person. But does it need to be the person? Does the name need to be known? Because obviously with, um, you know, cryptography, it's just a number. So you don't need to know unless you need to know who the person is. Um, so it, it, the technology is more or less there, still needs a bit of work. There's a lot of testing needed for scale without question. But I think that's where the public-private would be really interesting to actually test this and see what information can be private, what's what's not private, what's shared with government, what isn't. Um, but I definitely say it's, it's there to be tested now. Thank you very much. Maybe one last question. Um, I think um, this is the next one. How do you see the role of a digital euro or other stable coin? Interesting. As payment, uh, considering current contracts, payment legal obligation, obligations in banks like uh, mortgages, mortgage. Oh, sorry, in my English pronunciation. Um, and I would maybe add, even add credit. Um, so did you get this question? So I, I think it's actually about like what is the difference between a stable coin and a uh, and a bank basically, and what what is the role of a bank and how do stable coins fit in? Let, let me try and, and an easy answer. Also, could uh, add some more complic complicated aspect. Central bank money means it is a liability for the central bank. Cash is a liability for the central bank. It is in our balance sheet as a liability. And if you have central bank money on your, as a, if a bank has money on, on, on her account with the central bank, it's also a liability for the central bank. Commercial bank money is a liability for the commercial bank. If you have a deposit with a commercial bank on your, on your uh, current account, then the bank has a liability and you have a claim on the central, on the uh, commercial bank. Uh, stable coins 
are sometimes structured as liabilities, not in all cases. Uh, that is the point, what I have been argued implicitly. All those stablecoins companies must decide whether they want to become a bank, a commercial bank, then the banking rules would apply and then they issue commercial bank money or they want to be uh, so-called electronic money provider, then they uh, fall under the rule of the e-money uh, uh, e um, directive in Europe, which applies only to Europe. But there is nothing like that in, uh, in the US. Or they could be considered a money market fund, then they fall under the rule of security law. They can decide whatever they want. And then the uh, subsequent, um, subsequent rules will apply and uh, then the money would be either uh, like commercial bank money or like e-money or it would be like a security claim. That's, these are the choices they have. They would never be central bank money. <laughs> That's for sure. Zeke, um, last question to you. Um, reply to this or um, reply to machine-to-machine uh, -machine payments? Um, the question was, where is it? So, yeah, it's basically about uh, CBDC. Will CBDCs provide machine-to-machine uh, -machine use cases? Will stablecoins provide a solution for M2M, which is basically machine-to-machine? I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, these, these payments can be applied machine to machine. Um, I mean, just going back to the previous one, you know, stable coins could be used to pay your mortgage if the, you know, the, the person who has your loan is willing to accept them. Right. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like I pay my mortgage with commercial bank money, it's not central bank money. Um, but my mortgage provider chooses to accept it from my bank account. Um, it's not that, you know, hard to imagine a future where, that company would accept stablecoin um, for a payment of my mortgage, much like, you know, machine to machine is super easy in, the, in that sense, right? I mean, it's programmable. It's, you could have smart contracts, right? Where, you know, you could have like uh, energy usage, right? So instead of paying your energy, you know, your energy bill, you could literally just pay it as you're using it, right? And you would never then get a bill at the end of the day or at the end of the, you know, the month or whatever the, the period is. Um, you would just simply um, be paying it as you're drawing down. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's an easy one. Again, it's all about, um, whether or not people will accept these things and whether or not they're useful. Um, you know, it's certainly stability and, and making sure that that stable coin provider is, um, you know, reputable and, and all of those things, um, that go on. Um, but again, we, we, you know, we choose banks, uh, in that way and banks still fail. Um, so, you know, there's, there's not hundred percent, uh, guarantee in anything in life really. Um, all you can do is, is certainly do the best you can to, to um, make it secure and, and stable. Well, I must say that why don't you use just simple bank deposit? The bank has a clear legal obligation to repay you the money. You know, the, the, I don't want in stable coins. Yeah, I, if I if I got the if if I have Peter's question right, I think he's asking why not use a just a bank deposit. Um, and the answer is great. Use a bank deposit if you have access to a bank. And I think that part of the 
the frustration right. I have is that most of my conversations oftentimes are in um, developed worlds where we all have banks and we all have bank accounts. And sure, I can just use my bank account. Um, there are so many people in this world who don't have access to um, traditional financial services. And so to say to them, just use a bank, just use a bank account. Like, I think that misses the point. Like they're not using stable coins because they want to use some fancy technology. In fact, they don't even really care about the technology. They're using stable coins because at the moment, these are the only companies who are willing and trying to reach them. You know, banks are not trying to reach them maybe because of overhead and all of these other things. And so, you know, yes, if they had a bank account, I'm sure they would choose a bank account over a stable coin. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that they don't have access to those. And for us to sit here and say, choose a bank account, it's safer. I, I just, unfortunately, like that's not the case for a lot of people. Um, and so like, that's like, we're focused, we're not focused on, you know, Europe and, and the US, we're focused on trying to make things better for people in parts of the world that, you know, their nearest bank is, you know, four hours away. Um, yeah. And and things like that. So that's why I just, I, 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 I bristle a little bit at this idea that just use a bank account. But they have these mobile phone systems, which are quite efficient as far as I know. Yeah. And they are not based on stable coins. They are based on kind of bank accounts in a sense. So it's a clear legal obligation. That but not really though. I mean, M-Pesa is not based on a bank account. I mean, M-Pesa grew out of basically phone credits right? Like that wasn't a bank account. I mean, that was like the equivalent of trading cigarettes in prison. Um, you know, it's like you, you use what you have and you trade what you have. And so, you know, I, I'm just saying that like, you know, the, the, it's not a bank account, right? Uh, and, and so they're using these credits to trade and that became money and that became, um, you know, effectively cash um, for them. Okay, um, perfect. <laughs> Again, really love this conversation. And um, yeah, obviously it's ongoing. Um, yeah, just looking at the time. Um, yeah, we started a little bit um, later, but still we are five minutes over uh, our 90-minute panel, which is amazing. I am not quite sure, but I think it's actually the longest uh, DEA panel that we ever had. And um like for me it was like for sure the most interesting one actually um so i thank you very much and um i would um ask you to um yeah I, or i invite you for last round uh, i hope our listeners um are yeah have the patience to listen to you i mean you can always uh, you can always um re-listen uh, to the last part on youtube it will be available uh, as long as the internet uh, is available and um, most of you guys are also um, part of our working group so if you uh, if our listeners like really want to engage um, in in the discussion um, join the dea so um, yeah how do we start maybe um, in the same um, in the same um, order um, as at the beginning uh, with uh, Dr. Martin Diehl, um, Head of Section Payment System Analysis at Deutsche Bundesbank. A wrap-up? A uh, wrap-up. These are very interesting times. And uh, we have seen the uh, advent of a very new technology, which is going to change a lot in, in the terms of settlement 
uh, of assets. Uh, for me, it is very fascinating because as someone who does analysis on settlement system, this has always been a back office topic. No one really cared about it. Now we have panels where 200 people listen. This is really fascinating. I've never seen so many people being interested in payment system as nowadays. Um, think really about what is new and how to make use of the new aspect. Uh, not everyone who, who is new, not every institution will survive. Uh, the aspect of decentralization is, in my eyes, a bit overvalued. I'm not saying that because I'm working in a central bank, which is not decentral as the name claims, but I believe that trust will be important, especially trust in money. Don't bet against the central banks. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Martin Deal. Uh, Anthony Welfare, European CBDC Lead in Global Partnerships uh, of uh, our new gold member. Thank you very much, Ripple. Thank you, thank you. I'm still a little bit scared from Martin now. He said, don't bet against central banks. So I don't want to say anything now. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, no, as Martin says, um, and, and the panel says, I think there's some really interesting technology and decentralized, centralized, it's a mix. It's not either or, it, it, it's gonna be, there's a scale, there's a continuum and it's not gonna be either end of it. And that's where we're gonna end up. And I think for me, there's a lot of innovation out there, learn about it, play with it, start to use it. And then secondly, um, it's about working together. Nobody's gonna solve the digital Euro alone. You know, this is gonna be, a massive number of partners because you've got all the different central banks, all the commercial banks, all the payment providers, and then everyone else. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, this is a big project where it needs to be open to working together, um, all different levels, all different parties. And the more we can do that, like the DEA is doing for us, the better this is going to be. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, great times ahead. So um, listen to these a lot more. There's going to be a lot more interesting ones. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Ziel Kopik, um, Global Head of Public Sector Research and Development at another partner of the DEA. Thank you for being here, C-Labs. Great. Yeah, thank you. And look, thanks to all the panelists. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this discussion, and I, I certainly could probably keep going for a long time. Um, again, I, I appreciate the discussion. I think that, you know, as Anthony said, um, and Martin has, has picked up on, like, you know, this is a, a, a many-year project, right? Um, and no one's going to solve uh, this issue by themselves. We're all going to have to work together. Um, I also think that, you know, part of it, too, is, is figuring out, like, what are the problems that we're trying to solve for, right? So, like, for the ECB's perspective, what's the problem that they're trying to solve for? Because that's going to be different, um, you know, in Europe. It's going to be different um, in other countries around the world, right? The, the problems are going to be different. And then, therefore, the technology or the solutions um, that, that we use to solve them are going to be different. So, again, not worrying about a one-size-fits-all, um, hoping to, you know, really just work together um, and to continue this dialogue to figure out, how we can kind of combine the trust and stability um, that a central bank brings um, with the innovation um, that the private sector can bring and, and how we do that together. So again, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, Professor Dr. Peter Bofinger, uh, Chair for Monetary Policy and International Economics at uh, the University of Beautiful Würzburg in Germany and also um, ex-German Council of Economic Experts, aka 
Wirtschaftsweise. I hope the connection works. Uh, enjoyed uh, this discussion and I think we are doing exactly the right thing here because this future of European payments and global payments can only be solved in cooperation with central banks, private banks, private payments providers and academics. I think that's what is needed and so I think we are on a good, uh, good road now. Okay, that was the perfect end statement for this discussion. This is exactly what the Digital EU Association is here for and This was the embodiment of this. I wish you all a great um, start into the spring and a great uh, 2022. And this is only the beginning. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. Bye -bye.